I'm uh, Jim Connell, a member of the Future Church Board and Treasurer for Future Church. And on behalf of Future Church and Voice of the Faithful, I certainly welcome you all here this evening. Uh, glad you found that we were in the upstairs room as opposed to the downstairs space. For those of you who may not have attended a Future Church program before, let me simply tell you that Future Church was founded in 1990 in Cleveland, Ohio, and it has become a respected national voice advocating open discussion about ending mandatory celibacy as a requirement for diocesan priesthood, advancing women in church leadership, promoting lay participation at all, in all levels of church decision-making, and maintaining the spirit of Vatican II and the life of the church. Future Church is committed to working for renewal within the organization and the structure of the Roman Catholic Church. The program this evening, as I mentioned, is a co-sponsored program with Voice of the Faithful, and we are certainly very grateful for their support. Let me just tell you quickly what the outline of this evening will be. We'll begin in a moment with our opening prayer. And after prayer, I'll introduce our speaker and give Sister Kate about an hour to do her initial presentation. After the initial presentation, we'll have a free will offering and a brief time for a couple commercial messages about upcoming future church programs and future church endeavors. And after that, then we'll have the opportunity for Sister Kate to respond to uh, questions and answers that you might have. And at this point, we're hoping that we're targeting about 8.45, 8.50 to offer our closing prayer uh, together. So welcome, and I'm glad we're close to starting on time. And Sister Chris Shank, our executive director, Dorothy Valerian, one of our program committee, and Ed Friedel from Voice of the Faithful will lead us in the opening prayer. I'm just going to intone um, the opening. Actually, it's a refrain, okay? And um, I will intone it twice. It's a mantra. I sing it twice, and you listen, and then you respond um, in the same thing twice, okay? So just take a minute and be, be still and, and um, be aware of God's presence so around us. Holy Sacred Spirit, fall afresh on us. Holy Sacred Spirit, fall afresh on us. Holy Sacred Spirit, Let our prayer rise 
before you. Accept our prayers with all who are praising you at this very moment. Give us, God, eyes for seeing. Today being uh, Ascension Thursday throughout the church, except uh, celebrated in the United States on Sunday, we have a reading from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In the first book, Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus did and taught until the day he was taken up, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them by many proofs after he had suffered, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While meeting with them, he enjoined them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, about which you have heard me speak. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When they had gathered together, they asked him, Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He answered them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has established by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem throughout Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him from their sight. While they were looking intently at the sky as he was going, suddenly two men dressed in white garments stood beside them. They said, People of Galilee, why are you standing there looking at the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will return in the same way as you have seen him going into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, on this day we celebrate your ascension, sign of the unity of heaven and earth. We know your presence is with us and around us. In the scripture, you tell us that you will pour your spirit on all peoples. As we pursue our dreams, inspire us by your Holy Spirit to follow them to fulfillment. So we pray, Holy Spirit, shine forth with your light. Help us see and live out your calling to the whole church. Laity, religious, priests, and bishops, to celebrate Vatican II's positive affirmation of lay rights. May we accept our responsibility to make real in our world and in our church Jesus' values of justice, respect, and love.
so that we might pray openly. I wanted you to have a sense of the evening before we started our prayers. Now I need to tell you the three hard-hitting, very practical announcements. Yes, there will be punch and light refreshments after we work so hard this evening. Secondly, it would be very beneficial if everyone turned off his or her cell phone, if you haven't already done so, so that we don't have any interruptions during the presentation. And then finally, just for your information, Sister Kate's presentation is being recorded, and it will be available on our website as a podcast, www.futurechurch.org. Once it is on the website, we will let you know through our Free Future Church update email list so that you will be able to uh, just re-listen and focus back again. I'm very pleased to introduce Sister Kate Kinsler, a member of the International Congregation of the Poor Handmaids of Jesus Christ. Sister Kate received her doctorate in canon law from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome, Italy. She also has her BA in education and an MA in theology. Sister Kate comes with a background in education and religious education. Her past positions have included teacher, parish catechetical director, and diocesan director of religious education. She is a writer for the catechetical program, Seasons of Faith. She is published in Italy, England, Germany, the United States. Her article, Fractured Face of Carmel, is also on the internet. For the past 12 years, Kate has been a tribunal judge, teacher of canon law, consultant, and workshop presenter on various aspects of canon law. She's a member of a task force in her religious congregation addressing injustice in the church. She chooses to live with the poor in East St. Louis, Illinois, and is proud to be the daughter of a farmer from central Illinois. And she, I can tell, not having heard her before, but she committed to me ahead of time that she can deliver an entire course in canon law for us in exactly one hour. So I know, and the amount of traveling that she's been doing lately and places she's come from and places she has to go, we're certainly in for a real treat. Kate, we welcome you. Of the course. And uh, all of the previous uh, statements of going through the different canons and, and uh, finding out what uh, all the meanings are of the words and how it relates to this, that, and the other, I'm going to just skip that tonight and just go to the therefores because those are the fun parts. As a canon lawyer, I believe that canon law is a gift to the church, but it's not a perfect gift. In addition, canon law has not been used adequately by the leadership in the church. The Christian faithful have not been informed about what is in canon law. They have not been informed about how to protect their rights that are contained in the law. For the first time in the history of canon law, the 1983 Code of Canon Law pre presents the rights and obligations of the laity and the church, as well as the clergy, in Canons 208 to 231. It's an historical document. Yet 24 years later, these rights are largely unknown to a large part of the Christian faithful, clergy, and laity alike. The Revised Code of Canon Law 
promulgated in 1983 is the final document of Vatican Council II. It should be on your shelf right next to the documents that you have there. Vatican II changed the theology of the church. And as a result, the way the church functions, the way the church is structured, had to be adjusted. The place where this theology of Vatican II is used in a practical way is the Code of Canon Law, 1983. Unfortunately, between the year 1965, the end of the Vatican Council, and the promulgation of the new Code of Canon Law, 1983, there is basically a black hole in the church, a black hole in the formation of the clergy concerning canon law, and definitely a black hole concerning the laity and knowing what their rights were and are. Any priest ordained before 1983 did not study this code in the seminary, and they were not formed in the new, renewed understanding of who the church is and how the church functions using the theology of church that was formed during Vatican II. Basically because it wasn't written. We had the theology, but we did not have the practical application. As a result, canon law has been misused, unused, and abused. The law is a living entity that has no value unless it comes to life in the community, unless it is applied and interpreted, and unless it becomes a part of how we think about ourselves. The book on the shelf is meaningless unless we live it. The Code of Canon Law promulgated in 1983 is not going to be the last writing of the Code. The Code was first developed as a systematic book of laws in 1917. Before that, the laws of the Church were found all over the place in various libraries, chanceries, and archives. As the Church, the people of God, continues to grow in understanding of who they are, the law will continue to be updated in order to help the people live in an orderly way. Canon law is a living law that continues to reflect the Church, the people of God, who are on pilgrimage. Uh, folks who... Um, I respect very highly canon lawyers, have um, told me that their opinion, personal opinion, is that the next revision of the Code of Canon Law will be a number of books based upon the different cultures around the world. So we'll see what happens. Canon law must always serve the religious purpose of the Church. It must help the Christian faithful to proclaim the life and message of Christ, to be a communal witness to the loving presence of God, 
to be of service to the world today. Now that sounds a lot different than what you probably thought you were going to hear about what canon law was all about. The final canon in the law, canon number 1,752, <laughs> says, says it best, and I quote, the salvation of souls is the supreme law. That is what it's all about. The church is a different kind of community than the state or secular society. The church is not a democracy, and that's not bad. The laws of the church have a different purpose than other legal systems. The church is not a government or a political state. Vatican II describes the church as a communio, a community of communities. I don't know if you know it or not, but the word hierarchy does not appear anywhere in the 1983 Code of Canon Law. The adjective hierarchical appears only nine times in 1,752 canons. The concept of hierarchy is going out of use, does not fit in the canon law understanding of church, which is based upon the new theology of church from Vatican Council II. The word and concept of hierarchy should be left behind. That type of structure formerly used in the church no longer makes sense if one is true to the authentic teaching of the Catholic Church found in the Code of Canon Law, the Canon Law of 1983, not 1917. The Church is now described as a participative group of people. Vatican II and the resulting Code of Canon Law describes the Church as a people who are fundamentally equal, a communion of the Christian faithful. In this model of the church, leadership is not domination. Jesus directed the apostles to not lord it over one another or over others. Gospel leadership is service. Lumen Gentium, chap, uh, chapter 18, actually paragraph 18, clearly says, quote, those who have been given authority are servants of their brothers and sisters, end of quote. The concept of communio, communion, is key to the understanding of the nature of the church. The New Testament describes communio as koinonia, and koinonia means sharing, participation, fellowship, communion. Mr. Uh, Mr. Lakeland, who wrote The Liberation of the Laity, asked the question in his book, 
Why do we need the designation of laity anymore? This idea is a form of duality in the church. It causes division in the church. See, if you have a hierarchy, then you have the laity. The code defines those who are not ordained by what they are not. Not ordained, unfortunately. But just remember, the code was finalized in 1983. It was in process all of those many years between 1965 and 83. So the church fathers, because they're the ones who wrote this, are, were growing in their understanding of who laos are. Now they got it right in other parts of the code, but unfortunately they define who clergy are and then everybody else is not clergy. No Christian is baptized to be a layperson. Jesus in the gospel never called people saying, come, be the laity. The word laity comes from laos, which means the people who are disciples and followers of Christ. So why don't we call ourselves who we truly are? Our baptismal identity is discipleship. A fundamental aspect of discipleship is participation in the ministerial life of the community. Service through leading, praying, teaching, preaching, and caring for those others. One of the exciting aspects for me is the opportunity to inform you of the authentic teaching of the Catholic Church regarding your rights and obligations as the Christian faithful. In my attempt to share that with you this evening, I hope to help you to cultivate a true, tough hope. A hope for now and a hope for the future. And the way to cultivate this true, tough hope is through developing the imagination that sustains hope in difficult times. And second, through solidarity, cultivating hope is a collective endeavor. It's a collective project. One cannot have hope alone. We must be there for one another. Be assured you are not alone. There are so many other people around the United States and in other countries who have the same vision, the same dream, the same hopes that you do, who are gathering together and building each other up through prayer, through education, and through service in the church, and they are like you are, the Christian faithful. I have met them. I cannot wait for all of you to meet each other. You are not alone. And we must do this nourishing for one another on a regular basis. We do this in communion with each other. So what is this solidarity that I'm talking about? Solidarity signals connectedness within the community. It obliges the community to address the needs of the weak and the disadvantaged. Solidarity goes beyond charity. 
It recognizes the right of the other to be at table. Solidarity is to be in full participation in every facet of the community life. And solidarity is a sense of mutual responsibility and care. And solidarity is based on the recognition of human interdependence. As a church, as a communio, we do not act in our own name. We act on behalf of Christ, who entrusted to the church, to us, the threefold duty to teach, to sanctify, and to govern. All ministry is rooted in one's relationship to Christ and to that community, whether the person is ordained or not. Chapter 2 of Canon Law, entitled The People of God, presents the Christian faithful as a priestly people, the people of God who share in Christ's prophetic mission, and as a result, as the census fidei, that's the Latin S-E-N-S-U-S-F-I-D-E-I, census fidei, the whole body of the faithful cannot err in matters of belief. The people of God have special graces and charisms fitting them for their various offices and ministries. That's right out of the Vatican documents. Above all, no one can coerce anyone to act contrary to their conscience. The internal forum that is one's conscience is sacred. Canon law addresses only the external forum, the community life, the public life of the Christian faithful. So often, I hear very well-meaning adults say, how can I do anything? The church is not a democracy. Doesn't loyalty to the church require silence? I say that true loyalty to the church requires us to speak out when we believe the church is not living up to the ideals and practices of Christ. Do not let anyone make you feel that you are unfaithful when you stand up to protect your rights or the rights of anyone, as found in the 1983 Code of Canon Law. Call yourselves who you truly are. You are the Christian faithful because Christian faithful is your baptismal name. Canon law is to protect personal rights. It is to provide avenues of recourse. It is to redress grievances, to be used to redress grievances, and to be a means for the resolution of conflicts, not to make any of these not to produce this. The church has a juridic order. Life needs to be conducted in a disciplined way. 
Yes, for all of its members. But, but, the law provides the rights and duties of the Christian faithful and provides a means for their protection. Church law is not to be used to coerce external compliance to rules. Church law is to be used to lead people to a virtuous life. Canon law is only the bare minimum of how to live a life of discipleship. Remember that the law that Jesus gave when he asked in the gospel, when he was asked in the gospel, what was the law? What should we do? What should I do? Jesus' response was, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. That's the Paschal mystery. That means we lay down our lives for one another. It's not what do I get from you, but what do I give to you? What do I make available to you? How can I be another Christ for you? It is out of this theology of canon law, it is out of this philosophy of canon law, that we will look at the rights of the Christian faithful. When, when I was studying the sources of these canons in, in Book 2 of Canon Law on the Christian faithful, the rights of the laity, I discovered that for the most part, the, the, they all reverted back only to the Vatican documents. There was nothing written before the Vatican Council II concerning the laity's rights and obligations in the law of the church. That does not mean that they weren't there, but there was no protection of them. The Christian faithful have a juridic personhood. They have official standing in the church and the Code of Canon Law protects that standing. So let's look at what the rights are. Let's start with the fundamental right found in Canon 208. It says, all of the Christian faithful are truly equal in their dignity and activity in cooperating to build up the body of Christ are truly equal in their dignity and activity in cooperating to build up the body of Christ. Preceding Vatican II, ministry was restricted only to the clergy, bishops, priests, deacons. Laity were allowed to assist in an apostolate only by invitation, and there was a definite inequality between clergy and everybody else. Vatican II teaches that within the diversity of the Church's members, there is a fundamental equality rooted in the sacrament of baptism, fully recovering the ancient notion of the priesthood of the faithful that had been lost as the years went by leading up to Vatican II. And clergy and laity are called to assist one another in the Church's mission. 
Okay, Canon 209 identifies the fundamental obligation of the Christian faithful in the church. I'm going to read it as it is, is written, and then I'm going to read it a second time, and I'm going to change a few words to help explain what it means. The Christian faithful are to fulfill their canonical duties toward the universal church and their particular church. In other words, the Christian faithful have the obligation to fulfill their canonical duties toward the universal church and their diocese, particular church diocese. Canonical duties. Hmm. Hmm. Never had those before. The people are the church. The Holy Spirit dwells in the people who are the church. Their goal is God's kingdom. All share in Christ's prophetic, priestly, and governing roles. All are called to exercise the mission that God has assigned the church to fulfill in the world. That is your obligation, the canonical obligations. Canon 212, paragraph 1, says, now bear with me. There's going to be the rest of the story. The Christian faithful are obliged to follow what the bishops declare as teachers of the faith or what the bishops determine as leaders of the church. This canon does not mean that an individual bishop is infallible. This canon does not mean that the Christian faithful may not question a bishop. The highest authority in the church is collegial, the college of bishops with the pope as its head. They are to be held in respect because they are the highest authority. The College of Bishops make the laws for the Church. That's the, the, the College of Bishops with the Pope as its head. But there are two time-honored canonical traditions that temper this part of the canon. And they are, first, another canon, Canon 27, says, Custom is the best interpreter of law. That's a very old canon. It's a very short sentence. It tells you how old it is. And it's never been revised. Custom is the best interpreter of law. The community knows best is this particular canonical uh, principle. The way a law is actually lived out, a way the law is followed by the people, is the, mes is the best measure of the law's intent. This reflects the belief that the Holy Spirit dwells within the community and guides the community of the faithful. In other words, the Spirit's direction can be discerned first in the action of the people, as well as second, the acts of the legislator of the law. And number two, a second canonical tradition that tempers this particular canon, the community's reception, receiving of the law, is decisive. The force of law depends in part on the community obeying the law. 
When the community fails to observe the law, it often means that the law is impractical or unsuited to that community. And I carefully and very respectfully suggest that possibly the law on contraception fits this very well. The same canon, Canon 212, continues other rights and obligations. This is the rest of the story. So paragraph one says, the Christian faithful are obliged to follow what the bishops declare as teachers of the faith or what the bishops determine as leaders of the church. But canon 212 paragraph two, the next paragraph says, the Christian faithful have the right to make their needs and their desires known to their bishop. And paragraph three goes on to say, the Christian faithful have the right to make their opinions regarding the good of the church known to their bishops and to other church members. Needs, desires, opinions, very interesting words. But in addition, you think that's something, there's even more to the rest of the story, and that is also Canon 212, paragraph 3 says this. The Christian faithful are obliged to express their opinions about the good of the church to their bishops and fellow church members. Not only is it your right, but it's your obligation. Right there in canon law. This is the authentic teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. If you want something conservative, this is it. Go for it. Have you ever heard of that before? Has anybody ever? I mean, it's not rocket science. The Christian faithful have the right and obligation to take part in consultation. They have the right to participate in coming to decisions that affect their lives. There's another canon in the first book on, on general norms. I think it's canon 119, and it's paragraph 3 of that canon that says, what affects all must be decided by all. Hmm. That's why the community of communities is the new model of the church, the participative model of the church. And that is when you meet up with that not happening, that's why it rankles the way it does. That's why it doesn't seem to fit anymore, because it doesn't. And that, it, this, is, this is blatant canon law. I am not changing a word of it. I often, I remember sitting in, in, the, in the classroom in Rome uh, the time we, we started studying book two. And I opened book, the canon law book and I started reading book two and I'm sitting there and I'm going, do they know what they wrote? <laughs> Did they really mean what I'm reading here? I wonder, I couldn't believe it. And I couldn't wait to come back and tell everyone about it. And it's been 11 years now that I've had a chance now to start telling everyone about it. And it's one of the most exciting things I can do to share with you. 
the exercise of authority in isolation from the faithful community is out of place in the church today. It is at odds with the spirit-filled and profoundly participative nature of the church as described in the documents of Vatican II. One of the new principles coming out of Vatican II that the leadership of the church seemed to often fail in their administrative decisions and administrative behaviors is subsidiarity. Subsidiarity implies an appropriate autonomy and self-direction for the local church. The local congregation possesses its own identity, its proper responsibilities, and its legitimate freedom of action. It means that the parish has a right to continue in existence with the maximum amount of self-direction and appropriate, inappropriate initiatives and activities. Each parish is a juridic person, perpetual by nature, perpetual by nature from the time of its establishment. Believe me, the Vatican frowns upon the willy-nilly suppression of the juridic person of the parish. The diocese should support, assist, coordinate the activities of parishes, but the diocese should not dominate them, should not micromanage them, and should not subsume their activities. Now, what if that doesn't happen? There's more rights in here that will help you to address that if that is not happening. Canon 221, paragraph 1. The Christian faithful have the right to vindicate and defend their rights in a church court. More often than not, though, we know about we know about the rights of the Christian faithful being abused. Most of the time, this is done through administrative decisions made by priests, by bishops, or others in authority of the church, such as the chancellor or the vicar general all of whom can be taken to task if they step on the rights of Christian faithful. When this takes place, the way to vindicate and defend one's rights is through the administrative recourse process. Ever hear of that? No. <laughs> the Canon Law Society of America has given two presentations, at least, to the Conference of Bishops, USCCB. They even, Canon Law Society of America, I belong to that particular organization, also has published a book entitled, let me get the right title here, Protection of Rights of Persons in the Church, Due Process in the Church. If you want to find it, it only costs about $7. Google clsa.org and look under publications. 
you can order it on the internet. And because of the cost of, of a mailing, you may want to order 10 at a time and, you know, every parish should have one. <clears throat> this administrative recourse process was not put into the Code of Canon Law of 1983. One of the reasons was the bishops really did not want this oversight. And they had they could not agree on what it should read, and therefore they published canon law, and then this came out later. And it was watered down somewhat, but it still has enough teeth in it to be a very good process to follow. For the most part, the Christian faithful don't know about this process and they don't know that it's available to them. In addition, they may not realize how to use it or even when it would be appropriate to use. And finally, canon lawyers who are clergy and work for bishops have not implemented the process. The role of the promoter of justice, who should be the person who, who develops this process in the diocese, is ineffective in the present structure of the church when the recourse is against bishops, because the promoter of justice is appointed by the bishop and works for the bishop and is a diocesan priest. The administrative recourse process is a process of appealing, number one, to the one who has taken administrative action, or two, to the higher superior of the one who has taken administrative action. Administrative acts are issued by those with executive authority in the diocese, bishops, vicar generals, chancellor, superintendent of schools, directors of diocesan offices, etc., etc. If such a person uses their office to denounce the good name of someone, this could be taken to due process. Canon 220 says that it, it is the right of the individual to have their good name, to have their good name uh, protected. If someone denounces your good name in public, in a public form, you can take them to in the administrative process. They have no right to denounce you. If such a person, um, an, an administrator in the church, uses their office to change the juridic status of a parish without just cause, this can also be taken to the administrative process, especially if the monies are redirected to the diocese to help pay for sex abuse cases, etc., etc., because canon law also says monies given for a specific purpose are to be used for that purpose, and if they're not, you can take that, the person who abuses that, in the administrative process. That's canon law. That's a very conservative, strict interpretation of canon law because that's exactly what canon law says. There are three ways uh, to follow this administrative recourse process. Re reconsideration, conciliation, and the administrative recourse process. The first form is reconsideration. A reconsideration is sought when the aggrieved person petitions the one who took the action to revoke or modify the decision. You go to the bishop and you ask him to reconsider, to change his mind, to change whatever it is he wrote or said. 
If that doesn't help, then you have conciliation. The church tries to avoid contentious conflicts. That's gospel. But when one is harmed by an administrative action, some form of conciliation or mediation between the two parties is strongly recommended in order to find an equitable solution. And if that doesn't work, then the one who claims to have been injured by an administrative action can make recourse for any just reason, any just reason, to the higher superior of the one who took the action. So if it's a bishop, then you take, you uh, petition the um, Congregation for Clergy at the Vatican. If they will not take the case, then you take it to the Vatican Signatura, the Supreme Court in the Roman Catholic Church. Right now in um, Boston, there are nine cases at the Signatura concerning the closing of parishes. It's unheard of in the history of the church that one diocese has nine cases at the Signatura because the Signatura takes only so many cases a year from around the world. What does that tell you about? <laughs> and there are more and more people, as they find out about this process, are beginning to use it. It is a just and reasonable way. You are not bound to sit there and feel so helpless and put upon. Bishops need to be Christian. All of us need to be Christian. The next rite that I want to talk about affects some of all of you, maybe, or some of you in this room. It's Canon 215. It says, The Christian faithful have the right to assemble as well as to found and direct associations for charitable or religious purposes. So there. And I propose that this includes people who belong to Call to Action, Future Church, Voice of the Faithful, etc., etc., etc. There are three kinds of associations of the Christian faithful. The first is what is called the de facto association, meaning it is what it is. When the group assembles, calls themselves what they are, they are. In this case, uh, the association uh, does not have any legal relationship in the church, does, is not a juridic person. But because they exist, they are a, uh, an association of the Christian faithful. If after a while, if they choose, and that's really what the way most associations begin. They just begin. Possibly, if they want, they can become a private association that is approved by Christian leader, by Catholic leadership, sorry about that. And they then become a private juridic person in the church, which changes their status. And if they so choose, 
and if it's approved, they then can become a public association of the Christian faithful, not only approved by church leadership, being a juridic person, a public juridic person, but they also are given a mission, a specific mission in the church, a specific task that they do. But there is nothing wrong with being a de facto association. No, you don't have juridic personhood, but you do exist. You, do, you should be respected for that. The next three rights all relate to dissemination of information regarding religious content. They're not in a specific order, um, so, so just listen to what the canons are. Canon 217. The Christian faithful have the right to Christian education. The Christian faithful have the right to a Christian education. The membership are to be educated in the fullness of faith. Unfortunately, our budgets in our parishes show how little is allocated for adult education. You heard the introduction of my background, so what I'm going to say, just know that I'm not prejudiced one way or the other, but I've been thinking about this, and I'm just wondering, would it not make sense that our middle class and upper middle class Catholic schools close, and those children go to the public school and catechize all the folks there? Because the parents of those kids are have enough money and enough wherewithal and enough free time, maybe, maybe not, but anyway, would be able to continue their wonderful Christian Catholic education in the home. But we don't shut the schools. We open the schools then to the disadvantaged, our new immigrants, those who would benefit from uh, a safe environment in a Catholic education system where they could not afford normally and would benefit and become stellar citizens in our Catholic Church and in our country. Think about that. Because that's what our Catholic parochial schools were originally for all of our ancestors who were the immigrants in those days. And maybe that's what they should continue to be for our new immigrants today. Just offer that as a suggestion. Canon 213. The Christian faithful have the right to receive the word of God and the sacraments. I'll read that again. The Christian faithful have the right to receive the word of God and the sacraments. Would you believe in the year 2005 at the Synod on the Eucharist at the Vatican that all of those wonderful bishops and cardinals stood up and tried to argue that receiving the word of God and the sacraments was a privilege of the laity and therefore they did not have to provide it for them? And our wonderful Pope Benedict stood up and said, I think the canon lawyers of the world would take great exception to that. Because canon law says the Christian faithful have the right 
to receive the word of God and the sacraments. Interesting. Interesting. Canon 2.18. Those engaged in theological disciplines enjoy freedom of inquiry and expression. And what do we have? Everybody has to take an oath of allegiance and, and whatever. I mean, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Who said that God has revealed everything to us? Already, And all we do is continue to restate the definitive teachings of the church. Those were not all definitive teachings in the church at one time. We still do not know everything there is about God. And we still have many things to learn about our relationship to God and God's relationship to us. And if that is shut down, I say that's heresy. Because canon law is a set of general norms of law based on Roman law, not common law as is our civil law, it is important for those applying canon law to real life to know how to use the law. When church leaders use canon law in the same way they would use civil law, abuses can easily happen. Canon 221, paragraph 2 says, The Christian faithful have the right, if summoned to judgment in the church, to be judged according to canon law applied with equity. The Christian faithful have the right to expect the court to act from a number of long-held virtues or principles that provide justice with mercy. Civil law only provides justice. And many times that's the most unjust thing that can happen because the individual is not the primary purpose here, but following the civil law is. We are a country of law, based upon law. Canon law, when used appropriately, is based upon the life of the individual person who is the Christian faithful of baptism who has rights and obligations. There are four principles I'm going to talk about right now. The first is equity. Equity governs the application of general norms to concrete cases. Equity takes the form of mercy and pastoral charity. It seeks not a rigid application of the law, but the true welfare of the faithful. It combines two notions. First, seeing that the ideal of justice is actually realized in fair result. And two, justice tempered with mercy, which is the softening of the rigor of justice under the influence of charity. The second long-held, long-traditioned uh, virtue is epikia, that's Greek, E-P-I-K-I-A, 
epikeia, a part of justice that enables one to correct the deficiencies of general rules. General rules have deficiencies. There is nothing so unjust as to apply equally everything to individuals. Because then the individual is secondary. Epikeia takes account of the inherent inadequacy of all human laws by applying them sensibly and wisely to individual cases. Remember, in the Catholic Church, we do not have prisons as the civil law system does. What we have instead is absolution, dispensation, and permission. We do not have prisons. Epikeia is morally superior to a merely verbal or rigid application of rules and therefore a better form of justice. Using absolution for sin, dispensation, and permission. The third principle is prudence. Prudence is a virtue that is named specifically that every man who is made a bishop is to have the virtue of prudence. And we should hold that very strictly for every one of our bishops, because that is what canon law says. What is prudence? Prudence is the habit of practical reason that directs persons and communities to do what they ought to do in each particular situation. A prudent act involves taking counsel about available options, making a choice among those options, and putting the final decision into action. There is always freedom in the choices and decisions for a person who is prudent. If you hear it's all we can do, we have no other choice, it is not a prudent decision. The one making the decision needs to have consulted adequately, gathered the information necessary in order to put a decision into action. We need to hold our bishops accountable to that because that is the one virtue named in canon law they are to practice. The fourth principle used for justice with mercy is economy. And we're not talking stocks and bonds here. Economy. The principle of economy is the principle of management, of stewardship. It's the means of administration of the church in imitation of God's stewardship of human salvation. Economy means both the prudent management of the church and accommodation, adaptation, or compromise in certain matters. It flows from God's powerful purpose in the church, and it can lead beyond the limits of church law. 
Economy is not so much an exception to the law as an obligation to decide individual issues in the general context of God's plan for the salvation of the world. Now, wouldn't it be interesting if canon law was conducted in those ways of those four principles? Because that is what the mind of the church has in mind. Canon 221, paragraph 3. The Christian faithful have the right not to be punished except in accord with canon law. And you say, what does that mean? Ah, there are two principles that, are, that apply here. The first is, interpret strict laws strictly. Remember the case a couple of weeks ago when there was a when the bishop out in Nebraska announced so magnanimously that the Vatican had accepted and approved and mandated his decision to excommunicate everybody from the call to action and about 16 other organizations in the, in the diocese. I knew it was everybody except Opus Dei and Legionnaires of Christ. <laughs> no offense to those two groups, but you know, it was interesting. First of all, he had, the bishop had to interpret the strict law of excommunication strictly, and he did not. First of all, excommunication doesn't happen because the bishop says so. He has to, first of all, have good reason and prove it. He has to go through a particular specific process, which he has not done, and he has to get the mandate from the Pope, which he did not get. What he got was a very companionable letter from a fellow cardinal, Cardinal Ray, from the Congregation of Bishops, who wrote a personal letter simply stating, in his opinion, Bishop Bruskowitz had the right to excommunicate these people. It'd be like me writing the letter saying that. Didn't mean anything. But it was used to scare people, bully people, and it was a way to denounce and defame the good name of a whole lot of people. Sounds to me like there's an administrative recourse process in the offing there. The second principle that follows, Canon 221, paragraph 3, the Christian faithful have the right not to be punished except in accord with canon law, is the exercise of discretion. Discretion means to distinguish or to discern. It means the power of choice. The purpose of the entire array of laws in canon law is to help the faithful in their spiritual lives. Go figure. This must be used to inspire personal conscience and to give people a sense of responsibility rather than the mere external following of precepts and rules. One cannot act contrary to one's conscience. 
We must be free to question, to search, to be on pilgrimage as the people of God. Blind obedience has no place in the Code of Canon Law. All of this assumes that the Holy Spirit gives her characteristic and charismatic gifts to all the Christian faithful, not just to bishops and clergy. Interestingly, there, is, there are many things not in the Code that are in Vatican II documents, but one of the rights of the Christian faithful named in the Vatican documents that is not in the Code of Canon Law is the following. The right to exercise one's own gifts from the Holy Spirit. The right to exercise one's own gifts from the Holy Spirit. This was omitted in the rites in Canon Law. Now I'm going to give you the positive spin on this and the not positive spin on this. Positive spin. I would like to think that the fathers of the church who wrote the Code of Canon Law in 1983 understood in their very essence of their being that one cannot legislate the Holy Spirit. And therefore, it just couldn't be added there because they, they didn't feel that they wanted to restrict the Holy Spirit. Or, <laughs> it was said in a movie some time ago, how can you keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? If they understand and know, if the, if the Christian faithful realize that they have the right to exercise their own gifts from the Holy Spirit, how can we control them? Canon law has its foundation in Christ, the word incarnate and hence serves as a sign and instrument of salvation. It does so only because the works of the Holy Spirit, who imbues it with power and strength, expresses itself, herself, himself, itself, as a product of the fruit of the Holy Spirit and reveals the true image of Christ in the full face of the people of God, in you, who I see as the face of Christ present in this room this evening. And I leave you with that. Amen. for uh, Kate to entertain questions that any of you might have. At this point in time, we are going to pass the basket for a free will offering uh, for any who are able and willing to contribute. Those contributions will be used to help future future church programming. So, And while we're doing that, I'm going to ask Chris to come up and uh, share a couple commercial messages, and then uh, Julie's going to follow after that. Chris? 
Um, I just wanted to give you an update about some interesting things. Um, we, as you know, we have been asking our members to um, deliver a copy of our best practices for preserving vibrant parishes in a time of fewer priests and our resource um, packet for preserving vibrant parishes called Save Our Parish Community, which provides um, all the canonical resources a faith community might need to protect their rights, um, given the misapplication of canon law in um, dioceses previously like Boston, Toledo. Um, but it also provides a discernment process for faith communities who are concerned uh, that they really want, you know, is it right that my parish is being asked to merge or close or isn't it? It provides educational resources about national studies from uh, the Conference on Pastoral Planning and Pastoral Development that did a major study of all U.S. dioceses that was published in 2003 that showed that 40% of merged parishes lost parishioners, suffered a net loss of parishioners, whereas parishes that were kept open with parish life coordinators, and again, these are vital, vibrant, solvent parishes, um, were more likely to increase parishioners. This is information that I know I didn't have, most of us didn't have, and so we're asking, um, and plus it has another educational thing on what are parish life coordinators. We're calling for keeping vital, vibrant, solvent, apostolically effective parishes open with parish life coordinators rather than close them simply because there are too few priests. Tomorrow, um, uh, Sister Kate and I are en route to Buffalo, New York, and then she's going to Syracuse where the bishop there just announced the closing of 40 parishes, and that in 2010, in two and a half years, that diocese will have 100 priests for the remaining 130 parishes. And 40 of those 100 priests will be 75 years old. So that we're not in that shape at all, you know, hopefully yet, and hopefully for a long time in the Cleveland Diocese. But this just gives you some idea of the national scope of this work that we're trying to do because it's clear that lay people will have to stand up and, and take the church into the, the future. And so um, we're doing this in the Cleveland Diocese. We're networking with many other groups around the country. I just found out uh, the Detroit Elephants in the Living Room, which is a group of priests and laity, are, are going, I know, that's because they're not afraid to talk about the elephants in the living room. It's a great name. They've been around for about six years, seven years. Anyway, they have, they have trained teams to go around to the Detroit Archdiocese to meet with parish leaders there to show them resources that ha are not being covered by their diocesan process. And I think that was our hope that we, would, we also supplied resources in Detroit and in a number of other dioceses. But right here in Cleveland, knowing the process that we are in, um, we are asking uh, uh, our members and other interested people to deliver these resources to the president of your parish council. 
I want to be clear, we do not in any way want to be adversarial. What we are saying is we see some of this information as being part of shaping the next step of parish life in Cleveland. And so um, I'm very happy to report, and I think Emily deserves a great round of um, applause here because she has worked with many of our, uh, we have a core committee that's been doing this. We have, I think it was 40, um, over, let's see, it was 50, 45 parishes who have, in the Cleveland Diocese, who have, um, our members have delivered these resources. And, and three outside the diocese and another uh, parish organization. So, I, and I should say, this whole project was funded two years ago by a local Catholic foundation here in Cleveland. And so, um, and it's, we're doing it here, but we're also doing it nationally. So we would very much like knowing sort of the state of flux we are in as a diocese. On the back of your program, um, if you are able to deliver a copy of this packet, and we have a cover letter trying to say how we're trying to work with you, we're trying to do this for the good of the church, um, if you would be willing to deliver it to your parish council, please let us know. If you're willing to be a parish contact, let us know. If you would like to join the local Future Church email update list, because we want to continue to be in conversation with one another as we traverse the next um, uh, time in our diocesan life, um, please uh, let us know. You can see Emily at the future. You can sign up at the Future Church table or contact Emily. So thank you, sorry for that lengthy thing, but I think it's very germane to the kinds of things Sister Kate was talking about uh, with us tonight around our rights and our obligations. Julie? I just wanna thank all of you for coming again tonight. And, um, one of our goals at Future Church is to increase our membership. And so I'd like each of you, you'll notice we've got some empty chairs in the room. So I'm going to challenge all of you to think of that empty chair next to you or around the corner from you. And I want you to think of someone in your family, in your neighborhood, in your parish, and I want you to talk to them about Future Church, encourage them to become a member. Um, in your program also, you've got um, a little form here of how to become a member or a supporter of Future Church. Um, so I'd like to you know, encourage all of you to um, go out and, and talk, to, talk to more people about Future Church because all of you sitting here are, many of you are members and, and very um, generous supporters of Future Church and we need all of you to help us be ambassadors for Future Church and to help us increase our membership um, and you know, help us to be able to continue to provide programming like this. So um, again, I wanna thank you
Thanks, Chris, and thanks, Julie. Um, now we will go to the point of opportunity for questions, and I think we will uh, practice the four principles. Equity, you'll have epikeia, you'll have permission to ask questions. I'm sure Kate will demonstrate prudence, and there will be good management and stewardship of your time in this questioning period, all right? We are going to use a microphone only because we are taping and that we need to use the microphone. So I'll hop around with the microphone for people who have questions, and uh, we'll let Kate respond. A question. Sister, you mentioned Paul Lakeland's book, mm -hmm. and as you know, he was a keynote presenter at the most recent Future Church program last October. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in his book, he talks about the role of the lay of the curia in the future. And you talked about hierarchy. And I would wonder if you would comment on your vision of the future role of the curia as Paul Lakeland describes it. Okay. I have to say, I have not read the whole book. <laughs> I haven't had time. Did he mention, was he talking about the Curia at the Vatican or the Curia in the diocese? At the Vatican. Okay. Oh my. Well, I think that in the future, different cultures are going to be important in the church, uh, not just the single minded uh, North, Northern European uh, culture based in Italy. And I think that that will necessitate a, a change in, in the dissemination of the central location of authority and power. And the reason for that is I think each area and region will be far more autonomous in what it does and that it, there probably will be the general um, spiritual discipleship mission of Christ, but it will be expressed differently in each culture. And therefore, there will need to be a dis dissemination of the singular headship of, of the curia. How that will be, I'm not sure. But if you have a community of communities that that can, can that includes, in my estimation, the participative nature of the church, and it will be far more disseminated than it is right now. Does that complement what he said? <laughs> okay. All right. You're welcome. Yeah. Sister, I'd like to hear uh, your comments about how change comes about in the, uh, the law and the rules in, in the church. Okay. We know, uh, certainly in the uh, civil law, that sometimes laws become obsolete mm -hmm. because people no longer believe in them, they don't meet their needs, uh, mm -hmm. and that sometimes the law has to catch up mm -hmm. with what the people want. Most, most of our laws on domestic relations, for instance, changed because the people change that would no longer observe them. Uh, in the church, uh, I don't know that there was any edict that said that women no longer had to have their heads covered in church, but they don't <laughs> anymore. And uh, there was never any uh, relaxation 
officially that I'm aware of, uh, of the rule that uh, unless you belong to a personal parish, you belong to your territorial parish. You don't hmm. really have the right to go elsewhere. Hmm. So uh, how do we, how does the church finally come about recognizing that these changes have come about and make them official? And how do we change other th- other matters and not simply wait for them over a long period of time, but foment change where we find structures are obsolete, mm-hmm. unjust? Okay. It's a good, good question. And that was one semester coursework that I did at the doctoral level. <laughs> the answer to that. Um, we, I, we studied... Uh, Gratian's Decretals, and that Gratian was a, a, a lawyer uh, back in the, what, 11th century or something, many, many years ago. And he was the first person who began to look around and say, now how, how what, what is the common uh, way of living here, and how did we come about having these uh, cultural laws and and these legal ramifications in our life. So he took certain topics and he went back and he said, "Okay, it's a law because." And he he found all the the fonts, the sources of that law. And let me tell you, it was very very colloquial. It was very homespun, and uh, but very interesting to me though I couldn't figure out why I was studying it. It was only later that I understood the professor and and the wisdom of the church was trying to show us how laws become laws in the church. They're not from the top down. They're from the census fidei, the people who live the life. Canon 27 is one of the oldest laws and one of the fewest few laws that has never been touched in canon law and from church law from its inception. Custom is the best interpreter of law. The customary way of living life is the custom of the, of the people of God. How do they live? How do they relate to each other? In the best sense. And the powers that be, the legislators who write down the laws, at least how it has been in the past, probably not how it will be in the future, look around and say, what's going on? The, the best example I can give is in the 1917 code in, religious, in women religious law. All they did was describe what they saw happening at that time in different religious congregations and in different religious orders of women and men, but mostly women at that time. And to go back and study that is not to find anything out except a description. And then they kind of made things into laws. Then because of that, you do this. Because everybody does that, you do that. And laws are written only after the fact. A good law in canon law does not, is not written before somebody does it, but only after the fact. And usually, I would say every law in the code of canon law is there because someone abused the law. 
It's there for our protection, to prevent that injustice from happening in the future, to be a directive for the full living out of our life in the church as a disciple of Christ. Now, that's the summary answer of your question, because that's really a good question. Uh, civil law, the example I usually give is there were, at least at one time, there were at least 200 laws in civil law concerning gun control. But not one of those laws prevented President Reagan from being shot. So a multi multitude of laws does not make anything better is simply a multitude of laws. Canon law, actually the Code of Canon Law of 83 has fewer laws than the 1917 Code has. And they're general directives with the understanding that there's yes buts with them for the most part. There are some that are not. Some are natural law. Some are divine law. But there's also new understandings of how those were applied and what those mean for us. But others are directives, they're, um, they're the laws on the missionary activity of the church. Those all come out of the documents on missionary activity. And they're, they're not really laws, they're just kind of prime movers on how to, to be a missionary in the church. But, they, but it's totally a different book. It looks different than the than general norms, which is book one, which, which does say that you're identified by your residence, your domicile, and your domicile does decide where you go to church. Yeah, yeah, no. Why does the Vatican <coughs> allow bishops to extinguish juridical communities who are very viable. For example, in Western Ohio, there's 19 farm parishes closed. Why, and, and they were all community, farm communities. And yet, the Vatican approved the bishop's closure of these things and his pocketing of their uh, monies. Uh, Tom Byrne and I have helped uh, a, a particular parish, uh, uh, St. James in Kansas, Ohio, file a civil suit because they applied to Rome and Rome backed up the bishop, said that he had a right to close it. But the, these, this is a community, 300 people, th I mean 300 families. They were entities all from their ancestors on up. And this community has been destroyed. Mm -hmm. And Vatican approved this destruction. Mm -hmm. So we're bringing suit against uh, the diocese in that they have appropriated assets. Mm -hmm. Realty assets as well as money assets, mm -hmm. as well as personal assets, because a lot of these people had things in this church when they were locked up. It's a shame that we have to go through the civil law to f enforce the, the juridic person right. of a community. Right. A question. Um, to whom was the recourse sent? Was it sent to the Congregation for Clergy? I believe it was. Yes. And was it sent to anyone else? No. 
That's the problem. You are then to redirect it to the signature. But no one told you that. Keeps the secret. Protects itself. That's right. And does not inform that's right. the laity that's of right. your rights. You can still, you could still, with that understanding that it was kept a secret and they did not know what their rights were, you can get a good canon lawyer who can act as the promoter of justice and saying an injustice happened because these parishioners were not informed that they could redirect the case to the signatura. And so then you say, you bring that as an additional element to the recourse action. Well, it's a shame we had, we had to file a civil suit. Uh, but, but I'm saying you can send another suit back to Rome, but to, this, to the Supreme Court of the Catholic Church, which is the signatura. Just understand this. Cardinal Bernard Law is on the board of the uh, Congregation for Clergy and consistently sends all of these back with the negative. Correct, I know that. Okay? I know that. Pass that word around. And they should, it, it could have been sent on to the signature because that's what they're doing now. In Boston, there were nine cases that had been sent to the Congregation for Clergy, and Bernard Law shot them all down. They now have sent them all to the signature, and the signature has accepted every case. And I would like to ask a follow-up question for that, because in my one course in canon law, I did it on the rights of Catholics, and we had Father Jim Corridan here about three years ago, three or good four man. years ago. Good, good priest. Yeah. And, um, but again, the difficulty is most of us are clueless about what we can do. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of the canon lawyers that we know work for the diocese. Right. And I think my question is, well, what are people to do if, I mean, is there like a website for freelance canon lawyers? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> People who are not beholden to some, oh, yeah. <laughs> some bishop? Uh, or <laughs> yeah, there are more and more of us out there. I don't have a website yet because I'm just growing into this since September. Yeah. But J. Michael Ritty has one. They're called um, Canon Law Professionals. And I think if you Google Canon Law Professionals, you'll get on his website. And um, he's a very good source person to make... Uh, make the connection, I think, with any canon lawyer who is a freelancer. Okay. Yes. Oh. Are uh, all the canon uh, law people this way? <laughs> Are they all religious or priests? Are no. there laity? Oh, yeah. Michael, so, Rid Michael Riddy is a layman. So if there's laity, they're not working for the diocese. Yes, they can be. They can be has nothing to do with being religious or a priest or a lay, or a okay, so lay person. It, it's whoever the diocese hires. So but almost every diocesan priest is working for his bishop because his bishop paid for his education for ah. that specific purpose. It's people like me, a religious, who needed a job and found a, real, a wonderful ministry working with the divorced uh, folks for annulments, 
but now is in a different position, or lay people who, who work as, as uh, canon lawyers for dioceses because it, pay, it pays better than freelancing. So how do you think the canon lawyers could become the yeast in, in the system to, without being, um, what, what shall I say, unloyal, Mm -hmm. but simply as educators. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult right now because the bishops are entrenched into a reactionary uh, way of life in the church right now. The institution is, is breaking down around them. The um, well-guarded secrets uh, are now coming out. The sex abuse was the first. The second is the financial uh, abuse. The third is the closing of parishes. Uh, and uh, the fourth is going to be God knows what. Thank you. Uh, your description of the system that uh, can be used to appeal mm -hmm. apparent injustices, uh, going up finally to what you refer to as the Supreme Court of the Church, Historically, then, from your perspective, has the rulings of that Supreme Court in cases that reached it been 50-50 from the standpoint, or is all of this simply a cynical charade okay. and it gets there and is shot down anyway? I don't know how to answer that uh, because I don't know uh, the rulings. Uh, just know, though, that this administrative recourse process is only 24 years old. It did not exist before 1983. And um, I don't know anything about those responses. But I, I think I can safely say that because no one knew about it, it was not used. So we don't have a battery of cases to even give the, that data. And as we go around and we begin to realize that we can use the process and begin to use it, I think the best thing that could happen would be an overflow of cases being sent to the signatura so that they become aware that there is a major problem. So I really don't know how to answer your question. Okay. Kate, since you probably don't know everybody in the audience, I can tell you there are several newsletter writers in here, so we'll probably have the word spread about the administrative recourse process before long, at least in this group. Just to respond about why bother, one of the things that happened in Boston where they suppressed 80 parishes using a suppression canon, and they did that because when you suppress a parish, the assets go to the diocese. And Boston was bleeding all over because of clergy sexual, all the lawsuits, okay, from clergy sexual misconduct. But in fact, when you merge a parish, the assets follow the people of the parish to their new parish home, okay? After these appeals, the sign actually it was the congregation of the clergy, sent a letter to, to Bishop Skillstead, president of the U.S. bishops, 
saying, please, and, and then Skillstead sent the, this letter to every bishop in the United States telling them that they could not use the suppression canon because that was the wrong canon. It did not respect the, juridic, the rights of the juridic person of the parish and basically said in almost all instances, this is a merger mm -hmm. and the assets have to follow the people. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, if those parishes hadn't stood up, we would never have gotten that thing, that ruling on canon law, which is really protecting the rights of the Christian faithful around their parish. So just for whatever it's worth, because I've had a somewhat cynical attitude about the whole thing myself, but this is one instance where it was very, um, you know, clear that justice did happen in that regard. Mm -hmm. uh, Sister, I was curious about the um, Canon 215, about the creation of uh, public of uh, de facto groups and private groups and public groups. Mm -hmm. First of all, I thought uh, I'd like to know where some of the groups that are represented here tonight fall. I know very little about future church, but mm -hmm. where about what about Voice of the Faithful? I, and things I think like that? they're all the de facto. Or they're all the de facto. Mm -hmm. And secondly, with regard to the private associations, given the fact that in Canon 27, the church sort of recognizes that, well, the Holy Spirit works through the people, and they respect that, why would we need? private associations be approved by the bishop in the first place? Uh, it's not that it needs to be, but if there's good works happening, and uh, it, it's it, actually it's an affirmation of their good works. You see, canon law works best and actually works only when there is good people with good faith in relationship with one another. And so it's not that they need it, but that it is an affirmation of their good works, and it gives them far more parameters to, to, um, to work in the church. Just to follow up, is there an application process to get this yes. affirmation? Yes, Could there's a discernment. That? I, that would have, you'd have to talk to the bishop as to what he sets up and uh, the individual uh, organization of what they would send up. It's a whole discernment process that they would go through. Um, in my religious congregation, where there is a, a sister congregation, a sister community that is just forming, and it is a private association of the Christian faithful. It does not fall under any canon law, and it, but it follows the charism of our foundress for the poor handmaids. And what the only thing so far has been that the bishop has been informed that this de facto association of the Christian faithful exists so that he knows who's in his diocese. And as the years go by, you see, nothing goes very fast in the church. You see, a custom becomes a law after 30 years, certain laws only after 100 years. And so it really is the development of a lifestyle, a development of a living entity that has a breathing, living way of life. And it, it's all, it is a very slow process, but it is also a healthy way to, to sift and sort how, how these folks are. Do they, do they um, uh, attract more members? Are they financially viable? Do they continue to do good works? Um, 
Are they uh, an asset to the, the, the life of the church? Those might be um, discernment realities that they would follow. And, and some others. Mm-hmm. The code of canon law that became effective in 83 who were the authors of that, and are any of them still living? Ah, uh, yes. Number of, almost every one of my professors at the university in Rome was an author of something in canon law. In fact, uh, there's a, a, a new, brand new canon in the um, marriage laws on what, um, what would be um, a basis for an annulment and one of my professors was the author, the single author of that law, and that is ratum et non consumatum. The marriage is ratified, meaning there was a, a wedding. It followed canonical law, the canonical form, but there was no consummation in the marriage. Brand new law. Uh, my professor, um, all of my professors were, were authors. One professor, we were his last class that he taught. He died a couple of weeks after our final class. He was the definitive author on the missionary activity in the church. He wrote, was an influential in the original document, encyclical on the missionary activity and was influential and the author of the second encyclical on the missionary activity of the church that was promulgated the the day we started class in January. And he sat there filled with cancer and taught us all all there was about the, the book on the missionary activity of the church and the encyclical. And it was a rare privilege to watch a man who had given his whole life to the church. The, I, I've been told by various uh, canon lawyers that there were many of the uh, books and canons in canon law were adjusted, discussed, and uh, uh, updated, created over a few bottles of wine and a three-hour Italian dinner in a trattoria as only good canon lawyers would do. We're going to take two more questions at this point. Uh, our, our parishes uh, had been forced to stop communal penances just recently. Okay. I'm starting to pick up from you today. Could our parish council use what you've been telling us today to try to push back on that, or is that not the kind of thing we could do? Boy, that's a, that's a good question because it's in there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And then they put the kibosh on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. I'm a, between a rock and a hard place here. If you ask me this over a bottle of wine in a trattoria, I give you one answer. But as an official representative of the church, I must give you a different answer, because that's how canon law is. Because the closer you are to the individual the answer shifts a little bit using the four principles. That's how it works. Officially, we have to go with what the, what the rules say. 
And unfortunately, what was said after the fact, when everybody got too, too excited. But just remember that in our, what we know as the Roman Catholic Church, which is truly, though, uh, a um, national Italian church, going to confession is the big thing that one does during Mass in Italy. Lived there four years, saw it all the time. In fact, the intent that the game is that you are in the confessional get, uh, giving your confession during the consecration. Somehow that is even better than if you're there at the beginning of Mass. It's a cultural thing. So they don't understand anything called a general absolution because for them it's a, it's a matter of, of pride and of, of um, yeah, pride to be there receiving your absolution in front of God and everybody during Mass. Go figure. So ask me over coffee. <laughs> sure. um, what is the cost of the administrative recourse process? Is it something that would be prohibitive for... You know, I don't know the answer to that, uh, but I do know that if you go on the internet and you look up, um, oh, what are they? What is what is Peter? What is Peter's Council of Parishes? And I think it's .org. Council of Parishes .org. Google that. That will give you the website for the group in in Boston. And on that website, if I remember correctly. They explain how they set up a financial um, um, uh, system for um, tax-exempt donations to pay for this uh, defense fund that they have. And it's, it's civil law, legal law, way to do it. And, it's, and anyone who gives their money to that, it's only for the defense, you know, to send over for this petition, this process. And anyone who donates can then take it off their income tax. And they are receiving monies hand over fist from people who want to participate, who want to contribute, who want to help out. And I don't know what the costs are, but they are able to pay their bills through that. And people are very happy to do that. At this point, we really need to express appreciation in two ways. First of all, to Sister Kate for her presentation this evening and for being here with us. And secondly, our appreciation to all of the future church staff and the program committee members for everything that they did for this evening. If there are still individual questions, we are having uh, punch and cookies. It's available right outside, and you'll have a chance to, to just talk. Uh, I do want to remind you that on July 18th is our next program, our St. Uh, Mary of Magdala celebration. Kim Langley will be the presenter, and it will be held at the Light of Hearts Villa. So we're going to the other side of town for a program, and that will be good also. Uh, we'll close with prayer, and Dorothy.
Brothers and sisters, may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation resulting in knowledge of God. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened that we may know what is the hope that belongs to God's call. What are the riches of glory in God's inheritance among the holy ones? And what is the surpassing greatness of God's power for us who believe? in accord with the exercise of great might, which God worked in Christ. Forth, powered by the spirit of the risen Jesus, to love and serve one another. Alleluia, alleluia. And maybe we could stand for our closing song, and we'll just, we'll do verse two, okay? <clears throat> Come, O Jesus, send us your spirit, renew the face of the earth. Come, O Jesus, send us your spirit, renew the face of the earth. Fill us with the fire of your love, burn in us now.